control in some way, God begins to change those areas of your life. So their income began to fall off because their income was based on wickedness and immorality. And therefore, Paul was not very popular. That's why in one particular place, particularly in the, uh, we read about Philippi and other cities where Paul and his uh, fellow ministers would be jailed. At this point in time, Paul had two times that he was under arrest in Rome. The first time, it was kind of like a house arrest. He was treated very well. His friends were able to come and go and, and refresh him and spend times of encouragement with him. This time is different. This time he's in the dungeon. His execution notice has been signed by the Emperor Nero, who was one of the most brutal and cruel and idolatrous emperors that Rome had. And that's saying a lot because Rome had quite a few of those. And he had signed the notice for Paul's execution. Paul knows that he's about to die. He's not fighting that. He's ready to go. And last week we read the very last verses of, of 2 Timothy, and we read the instructions. The one thing I want you to remember before we get started today in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy is that since Paul knows he's about to die, you can imagine what you would want to say to someone you were close to. Timothy was his spiritual son in the faith. Paul felt personal responsibility for the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, and all the other churches that he had apostolic authority over. So you can imagine if you were sending a final letter and you knew it was going to be your final correspondence with someone you loved, then you can imagine that you would be saying the things that are most dear to your heart. Therefore, 2 Timothy is known as one of Paul's most heartfelt and emotional letters. With that in mind, let's dig into 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, you're going to see this again and again and again and again in Paul's letters. It doesn't matter if you're reading Galatians or you're reading Colossians or you're reading Thessalonians. It doesn't matter where you're reading. Something like this is how Paul opens every letter because he wants to make sure that the one who receives the letter understands that he did not take upon himself the power, the calling, and the authority to be who he was. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So recognize this. Paul knows who he is. It's important that you know who you are in Christ. There's nothing wrong with having a sense of faith and confidence. As a matter of fact, you should have a rock-solid confidence in who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you. There's nothing wrong with recognizing the callings and the giftings that God's placed upon your heart. There's nothing wrong with identifying what your callings and giftings are. Paul knew he was an apostle. But you need to understand that all of the giftings and all of the callings that you have are not your own. They are gifts from God. Therefore, you can't take credit. You can't boast in those things. So again, just as Paul does in every one of his letters, he starts it out by saying, yes, I'm an apostle. I know who I am. I know what my power is. But that means I also know where my responsibility lies. Because let me say this very, very quickly. If you have power and authority, and, and as as full gospel, whatever we want to call ourselves Christians, we're all about power and authority. But you need to understand something. With power and authority comes responsibility. There is no such thing as true power and authority from God without responsibility. Anytime God grants anything to anyone, any gifting, any calling, any power, it comes with responsibility. So Paul says, I'm an apostle, but it's by the will of God. And notice I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not trying to build a kingdom for himself. He's not trying to promote his own name. He's not trying to sell his letters. He's not trying to get people to come to an event. He's not promoting himself. He's saying just very clearly, this is who I am. This is what God's called me to be. It's all because of him, and it's all because of the will of God. And then he says, the reason I am this way is it's according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, my life is in Christ. We studied a little bit last week when we opened up this letter what Paul had said to the church at Philippi, where he said, for to me, to live is Christ, 
but to die is gain. This life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He said, I've given up. I've forgotten all the things that I had going for me. Everything that was on my account before I came to Christ, I count it now as loss. And he even says, I count it as rubbish or garbage. And the worst of garbage that you can find, the stinkiest, smelliest garbage you can find, he says, that's what everything I had going for me is to me now apart from Christ. Now, Christ is everything. He is all in all. Now, that is Paul's heart. How could he say those things? Because Paul had come to a place where he pursued his relationship with God to the point that now his whole life is Jesus. And that's something that the modern-day body of Christ, especially in the West, needs to understand. Our life is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our salvation is Jesus. Our peace is Jesus. Our joy, all that we have is in him. And your life and mine as believers, they're not for us. They're not about us. They're about him. That is a biblical understanding of life. And when that is your life, you can finally rest. You can finally have some peace. We're no longer competing with one another. We're, we're no longer striving and trying. You know, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, and I happen to believe Paul wrote that book as well. There's some dispute about that, but I think he did. But whoever wrote it, the book of Hebrews says this, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for Christians. And then he gave a command to Christians. He says, see to it. This is so important. Don't miss this. See to it that you, individual child of God, enter into that rest. And then he tells you something about when you're entering into the rest, how you can identify it. He says, the person who has entered into the rest of God has ceased from his own striving. I don't want anybody to raise your hand. I don't want anybody, you don't have to say a word. I just want you to think, have you been striving lately? Or have you been resting? There is a rest for the people of God, but you have to diligently and intentionally enter into that rest. And the only way you can enter the rest of God is to stop striving. You, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't manufacture it. You just enter it. And so here Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I didn't take it upon myself. And it's according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So everything Paul did, and Paul did a lot for the kingdom of God, everything he did, he did by leaning into the life that he has in Christ. Now he addresses Timothy. Notice he says, you are my beloved son. You see the affection there and the depth of it. And this isn't unusual. In the New Testament church, there's such a depth of affection within the believers. Jesus said, the world will know that you belong to me. The world will know that you're my disciples, not by the churches that you build, not by the programs and the ministries that you run, not by the causes that you're involved in, not by the messages that you preach, not by the songs and the music. All those things are good things, don't get me wrong. But Jesus didn't identify any of those things as how the world's going to recognize his life in us. He said, the world will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Now here's my question, how deeply do we love each other? We allow so many things to divide us. We allow so many things to separate us from the brethren. We allow so many things to get under our skin and cause us to walk in resentment and unforgiveness. And yet, over and 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 over again. Matter of fact, Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I give unto you. And here's what it is. Love one another. Love one another. Matter of fact, the Apostle John goes even farther. He says, if you say you love God, but hate your brother, if you say you love God who you cannot see, but you hate your brother who you can see, he said you're a liar. And the love of God is not in you. Now, that's pretty strong words right there. Don't throw anything at me. I didn't say it. God said it, though. That's a pretty big deal. God said it, and he didn't just say it once. He said it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Matter of fact, when someone came to Jesus and he said, 
What's the greatest commandment? What's the, otherwise, what's the most important thing? What's the primary thing? What's the thing I really need to make sure I don't miss? Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With everything you've got, love God. And then the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commands, hinge or turn all of the law and the prophets. Do you know what that means? It means you can get 20 different things right in your life. If you don't get those two things right, you got nothing right. That's pretty big stuff right there. You get those two things right, all the other stuff is going to start lining up the way it should. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you might say, well, that's pretty easy, Lynn. I, I like my neighbor. We barbecue together all the time. You know, we're, we're doing stuff together. You know, we live so close. So he's not talking about that. Jesus made clear who the neighbor was in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is whoever God sends into your path that is in a place of need. That's your neighbor. No qualifications. You don't have to know anything. You just need to know that this is the person God brought into your life today, and they're in need. I don't like that person. That doesn't matter. They don't think like I think. That doesn't matter. They don't believe what I believe. That doesn't matter. None of that matters. Not in Jesus' command. He just says, that's your neighbor, and you've got to love them. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are the commands. So he says, Timothy, you're my beloved son. Such a deep term of affection. How deeply he loved Timothy. And then he gives a standard greeting. It's the same thing as if I was writing a letter or sending a text, as I said last week, and I said, hey, I pray. And I know when I was sending the text while we were on lockdown each week, I'd usually start out with something like, I pray this text finds you blessed and safe. That's exactly what this means. Paul is saying the same thing in a different way. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I want you to remember that, that God's grace is all you need. I want you to remember and celebrate the mercy of God. I want you to be walking in peace from God. I want you to recognize this awesome relationship that you have in God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he ends his greeting and begins to get into the body of what he wants to say. Now, I want you to remember this before we go any further. In the original manuscripts, there were no chapter breaks and there were no verses. Okay? So all of 2 Timothy, chapters 1 through 4, would have been one letter. So it's important we realize that. Well, why are there chapter breaks and verses? Because we don't think in the Western world the way the Eastern mind at that time would think. So those who translated the Scriptures decided they would make it easier for us to study and easier for us to read, and therefore they put in chapter breaks and verses. They put that in. But this was all one letter. So right now, Paul has just finished his greeting, and he's getting ready to get into the body of what he's going to say. So everything we're going to read, and don't worry, we're not going to read it all today. I went a little long last Sunday. I guess I just kind of happy to get back out and, and preach. So I, I look back on it, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I preached a lot longer than I thought last Sunday. So I'm going to try to do a little better today, and depending on how the Lord leads. So we won't read all four chapters, but I just want you to keep that in mind. The second letter to Timothy is everything that's found between here and chapter 4, okay? This was all one letter. And so Paul begins by saying, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. And without ceasing, and again, remember he's talking specifically to Timothy. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. So we know something here from Paul. And I mentioned this last week. Paul was a man of prayer. Not only did Paul pray consistently and regularly, he encouraged us to pray consistently. It's Paul who said to the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Okay, so Paul wants us to stay in a constant mindset and a constant attitude of prayer, and Paul practices it. We know that it, at the very least, twice a day, Paul would stop everything and pray because he said, I pray for you night and day. I don't think that means that he's going around 24-7 constantly praying because he, had a, he was a tent maker to, to help supplement his income, and he was preaching, and he was teaching, and he was leading the church. But at least two times a day, Paul stopped everything. And he prayed. Now, I'm sure he prayed more than that, but at least twice a day, night and day, Paul would start. Would it be too much to think that probably Paul started and ended every day with prayer? Wouldn't it be an awesome thing if we would start and end 
every one of our days by seeking God? Wouldn't it be great if every morning when we got up, before we started our activities, we would say, God, you know, I know I can't do this without you, so God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm alive. I thank you for my family. I thank you for this freedom. I thank you for my, my health. I thank you for all that you are. I thank you for salvation. God, I ask for your wisdom. I ask for your touch. God, I pray for these that are in my... Wouldn't it be great to, to start your day by recognizing your total dependence on God? Wouldn't it be great when God's brought you safely through another day to end it by saying, God, I thank you for getting me through this day because I couldn't have done it without you. There's no way I could have navigated one of the things I've been through today without your wisdom and without your peace and without your joy and without your word and without your strength. And now, God, I pray for those. Wouldn't it be great to do that? At least that? That's what the Apostle Paul did. And he prayed for Timothy night and day. Another thing in verse 3 I want you to note is he said, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. Now, Paul was not perfect and he didn't claim to be. Matter of fact, Paul kept saying about himself, and oh my goodness, I would give anything in the world if the New Testament church could get this attitude. Paul said about himself, I am less than the least of all the saints. And one of the reasons he always felt that about himself is because he kept saying, I persecuted the church. Now, most modern-day Christians would rebuke Paul for that because we'd say, well, brother, you're forgiven. Bless God, you're free. You don't need what? Quit thinking. But, but Paul never forgot just how far God had brought him from. He never forgot how he had been rescued. He never forgot how badly he needed grace. He never forgot who he was before Jesus found him. And he celebrated that every day. He never got into thinking too much of himself. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 7 is a beautiful chapter because at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the struggle that he has. A lot of theologians, because they, they can't handle the fact that Paul was saying he struggled, they try to say, well, he's just talking about what happened before he came to Christ. But contextually, that won't work. It just doesn't work if you read what's in the context of that scripture. So Paul says, the very things that I don't want to do, I seem to find myself doing. And the very things I want to do, I seem to have trouble doing it. And then he cries out in desperation, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says in the last verses of Romans chapter 7, I thank God through Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he goes right in. Remember, there were no chapter breaks. He goes right into what we call chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, Paul lived and walked this. So he says, I serve God with a pure conscience. There's another place where Paul says, look, your opinion of me doesn't really bother me. Otherwise, he says, I'm not really worried about what you think of me. Boy, that would be a wonderful thing for our generation to get a hold of. In the world of social media where we live and die on how many likes we get and how many shares we get, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for us to not really care what anybody else thought about us? Paul said that. He said, I don't care what you think because I don't stand before you. You're not my judge. There is one judge, and he is a righteous judge. So Paul says, as far as I know, I serve God with a pure conscience. Then in verse 4, to Timothy, I greatly desire to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. And the reason there are tears is because if you read in the book of Acts, read some history behind this, you know that Paul knew when he went to Jerusalem and then on from there when he eventually wound up in Rome, he knew that he was going to be persecuted. As a matter of fact, there was a prophet by the name of Agabus that came to Paul before he left on this final journey, and he took Paul's belt, and he bound his hands up with it, and he says, the person who owns this belt is going to be bound and taken captive. And then all of the elders of the churches who were, loved Paul so much begged and pleaded him, don't go, don't go, please don't go, because they didn't want to see him in prison. They didn't want to see him die. But Paul said, y'all, you've got to stop. You're breaking my heart. I have to go. I've already, I'm ready to die. The Lord's already showed me where I have to go. And so they left, and there were great tears there. So when he left Timothy in Ephesus, he thought he might not ever see him again. And Timothy, in his brokenheartedness, cried over seeing his spiritual father possibly walk away from him for the very last time. And not only is that important to recognize that Timothy felt so deeply, I think it's important to recognize that Paul felt so deeply. 
Because sometimes it's almost like we see our New Testament quote-unquote heroes as just being machines. You know, they just kind of went out and did all these great things. And boy, I wish we could be like that so that I didn't have any problems or any fears or any concerns or broken hearts. No, no, no. They had broken hearts. They had problems. They had difficulty. You might be surprised to know they even dealt with sickness. Paul had something wrong with his eyes to the point that he couldn't even write his own letters many times. Somebody else would have to write them. In one particular church, he said that the church loved him so much that if they could have, they would have pulled out on their own eyes and given them to Paul because he had such a disfigurement and problem. We don't know if it was just a physical sickness or if it was something that came because of the stonings that he had had and the persecution he endured. We don't know. All we know is that he had it for the rest of his life. There's one point where the Bible says he had to leave Trophimus behind in a city because Trophimus was sick. So for everybody who's ever prayed that someone who was sick would get well and you didn't see them get well as quickly or, or if they never, you think, well, it's lack of faith, it's a lack of this. Well, if that's true, then Paul didn't have any. I'm betting he had some. Because he at one point had to leave Trophimus behind sick. And by the way, there's another instance where a man who worked with him by the name of Epaphroditus got so sick he almost died. And they had to write to the church that had sent him there because they were so worried about him because he literally came to the point of death. And Paul makes a statement that would throw every charismatic person into a fit. And it probably does. If it wasn't Paul, we'd rebuke him. But since it's Paul, we can't say anything because I, we're, we're, I know we're so much stronger in faith than Paul. We've learned so much since those days. Aren't you glad we live in these days and know more than the Bible writers did? Isn't it great? Yes, that's tongue-in-cheek and sarcastic, and I meant it to be. Okay. But Paul says, we were worried to the point of almost desperation over him. And that's Paul, who every verse you quote about faith, guess who wrote it? 95% of them. He did. So he knew, they know what it is to be sick. They know what it is to suffer. They know what it is to go through difficulty. They know what it is to be brokenhearted. They know what it is to be separated. They know what it is to be betrayed. They know what it is you're going to see in a moment to be rejected. And they felt deeply. And so Paul goes on to say this in verse 5. Talking about Timothy now. When I call to remembrance the genuine, authentic faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Now that doesn't mean that you can pass salvation onto your kids because you can't do that. Each individual has to come to a place where they recognize their need for a Savior, where they recognize their own depravity, their own sinfulness. They recognize that they can't save themselves. Only Jesus can save them. And they, by faith, come to a place where they receive the grace of God and are born again. That's the only way anyone can be born again. But there is a principle of the Bible even says that the righteous, the children of the righteous are set apart or they're sanctified. It doesn't mean they're guaranteed salvation, but it means the Spirit of God is going to be working. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you raise your children up in a home where the Word of God is taught and, and, and praise is a part of your lifestyle and prayer is a part of your lifestyle and giving is a part of your lifestyle, then they're going to see that from the time that they're young. So where one person may not have an opportunity to know who Jesus is until they're an adult, your children, if you live this thing in front of them, are going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to see Jesus at work, hopefully, in your life. But what had happened in Timothy's life is both his mother and his grandmother. Now, notice it doesn't say anything about his dad, and he had one. And there are a lot of people who get discouraged because maybe you think, well, I sure do wish, you know, my husband or my wife or, or I sure do wish my son or my daughter, I sure do wish they would just love God like I, and be as on fire for God as, as they ought to be. But notice that authentic faith, it doesn't require... 100% participation, it requires just one person believing God to make a difference in someone else's life. So both Timothy's grandmother and his mother had an authentic faith. It changed Timothy's life. And now Paul says, I'm persuaded. That means I know for a fact this faith is in you. Well, how, how did he know? Because obviously he could observe it. The Bible talks about when it says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. It says, behold. Behold means look. Observe. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That means you can't expect to see change in somebody's life who comes to Christ. You can. If somebody wants to believe that they've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and yet there's never, ever any observable change, then they need to reevaluate where they are in Christ. I can't judge whether they're... I can't judge their souls, but I can tell you you ought to be able to observe change. Not because not, doesn't mean everybody's going to be perfect, but it simply does mean there's a change in our life when we come to Jesus Christ. So in verse 6, Therefore I remind you, and this is so important for us, Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now he's talking, obviously, if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit resides within you. The Bible says if you don't have his spirit, you're not his. We can't come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit draws us. And everyone who's born again, the Holy Spirit resides in their heart. And the Holy Spirit brings forth gifts, which represent the power of God. And, they, and the Holy Spirit brings forth fruit, which represents the character of Christ. And both things should be growing off. So that is certainly part of what Paul's talking about. But the main emphasis is on his calling and his gifting. Notice it says that you receive from the laying on of my hands. That was basically Timothy's ordination service. There was a point where Paul laid hands on Timothy and commissioned him into the ministry that he was currently in. But apparently, because of some other references we know, not just this one, Timothy, and this is why it's so important for us, Timothy struggled. He apparently was timid. Now listen, I can identify with that. You may not know that because I'm up in front of people, but I, I have always battled with shyness. It's just my natural personality bent. Apparently, Timothy did too, and he apparently battled with it so bad that his stomach was constantly torn up in knots to one point where he was instructed by Paul to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. Medicinally, he was saying, you're so tied up in knots, you're so stressed out over what you're doing because of your natural bent towards timidity and being intimidated, you need to do something to get a little bit better with what you're doing. He also told him here, which is a we quote this verse all the time, but we need to remember who he's talking to and why. He says, for God has not given us, verse 7, a spirit of fear. That literally means a spirit of intimidation. God has not given us a spirit of fear and intimidation, but he has given us power and love and a sound mind. So he's telling Timothy, look, over and over again, Timothy, you've got this gifting. It's in you. Why did he have to remind him of that? Because sometimes when things got tough, Timothy forgot. Timothy struggled. Can I tell you something? If Timothy struggled, you and I are probably going to struggle too in some area. And if you struggle, that don't mean that God doesn't like you anymore and that God can't use you anymore. God kept using Timothy, but what's important, Paul had to remind him, just like God has to remind you and I, that there's something we need. We can't just live forever in the struggle or in disobedience because of the struggle. At some point, we've got to hear the word of the Lord, and we've got to stir up that which God's put inside of us, and we can't bow, and this is in any area of our life, to a spirit of fear or intimidation. Intimidation. We can't live our lives in fear. And that, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Now there's the fear of the Lord, which is a sense of awe and reverence and adoration. That's a good thing. But then there's a, a, an ungodly, unbiblical fear that paralyzes us and keeps us from moving forward and keeps us from obeying God because we're afraid of this or we're afraid of that. In Timothy's particular case, Timothy dealt with a fear of man. And so Paul reminds him, stir up the gift. Remember that I laid my hands on you, and you're ordained to do this. You're called to do this. Otherwise, God's gifting and calling inside of you is bigger than what's on the outside of you. And that's what the Bible said about us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So God didn't give you that fear. Well, if God didn't give it to you, then it came from somewhere. So the enemy's always going to try to put fear and intimidation in your life to keep you from obeying God. So he says, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If my response and my reaction and my decision-making is not filled with power, not filled with love, and not filled with a soundness of mind, then my responses, my actions, and my decision-making is not coming from God. So it's coming from somewhere, but it's not coming from God. 
And so Paul reminds Timothy of that. He might have called him Timmy. Who knows? But Paul reminded Timothy of that. God didn't give you that fear. He gave you power and love and of a sound mind. Verse 8. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Paul said this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it, the gospel, the gospel by in and of itself, with no supplements, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believed. Paul said, and I've quoted it a lot lately, he said, I refuse to preach anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Otherwise, according to the Apostle Paul, if we ever get the fullness of understanding of what Jesus' substitutionary death and suffering, His resurrection, His ascension, and His outpouring of the Spirit and His soon coming, if we ever get the full understanding of what that means, you're not going to need anything else because that's going to create so much power and life inside of you that it will take you wherever you need to go, enable you to do whatever you need to do and say whatever you need to say. So he says, I refuse to preach anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he said to Timothy, don't you be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And there's a reason he said that. It's because he had been deserted by almost everyone. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, after all he had done, he had been deserted, he had been rejected, and for the most part, left alone. So he said, Timothy, don't you be ashamed of me, because the reason I'm a prisoner is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he said, share with me in my sufferings. You remember we said this last week. We were reading in the book of Philippians. If we want to experience the joy and the power of his resurrection, we have to share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, the sufferings of Christ that the church was enduring that he's referring to is persecution because of the gospel. Paul's setting in prison because of the gospel. He didn't do anything wrong. He's, he just preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, not only is he in prison, not only has he many times been beaten and stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and had dangers of all kinds, he's about to be killed because of the gospel. So he says, Timothy, not only don't be ashamed of this, and don't be ashamed of me, but share with me in the sufferings. Boy, wouldn't you love for a prophet to stand in front of you today and say, America is getting ready to go into the worst season of persecution it has ever known or dreamed of. Many of you will die. Many others will be put in prison. Many others will be tortured without relief. But share in these sufferings. Don't be afraid. No, that's not my prophetic word this morning. But that is a prophetic word that was given to the New Testament church. So what if we actually believed what God said and... Are you willing to share in the sufferings of the gospel? Well, you will if you realize the gospel's about Jesus. But if the gospel you're following is about you, then you won't. And you see, what really bothers me is much of the modern-day quote-unquote gospel isn't so much about Jesus. It's about you and me. We don't so much come to church to, to many times grow in Jesus and grow in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We come to church to learn how to get better in our life, how to make our life more comfortable and our life more convenient and have more power for us and more joy for us and so that we can do all of these things. You see, if that's what we're living for, if that's all we're living for, and if that's what we think the gospel is, and by the way, I keep saying that because I want to make sure that you understand that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is actually a false gospel. But if that's what you think the gospel is, then when it comes to sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, many quote-unquote Christians will go AWOL real quick. And I don't want you to be any of those people. I won't give an account for what other preachers preach in their pulpit. But I will give an account for what I preach in this one. And so I want to make sure I'm preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said you've got to be willing to share in the sufferings of the gospel. He goes on to verse 9. He says, this God, this, this Savior of ours has saved us and he's called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. There's so much there. I don't have time to spend all the time I'd love to on that. But let's just understand, isn't it good? You didn't save yourself. 
You didn't call yourself. You didn't deliver yourself and you don't equip yourself. Jesus called us. Jesus saved us. Jesus equips us. Jesus anoints us through the person of his spirit within us. All of these things are done by him, accomplished by him, and carried on through him. And this calling, by the way, that you have, this calling to be a child of God, this calling to be accepted in the beloved, and whatever God's called you to do, it is a holy calling. That means it's, it's not something to take haphazardly. It's not something to take apathetically. It's not something to be complacent about. It's not something to be flippant about. This calling is holy. Your calling is holy. There's another place where the Bible says live a life worthy of the gospel. You say, well, I can't, I can't, I can't. No, you can't, and I can't. So we have the Spirit of God within us to enable us and equip us to live this life. He said, it's not according to our works, and that's good because none of us are good enough to earn this. On your best day, you don't even get close. Oh, and by the way, that's me too. On my best day, I don't even get close. I can't even get on the playing field on my very best day doing the very best I can. It's all mercy. It's all grace. It's all because of the blood. It's all because of the Spirit. It's all because of His Word. And it's according to His own purpose and the grace that was given to us in Christ. Notice he says, before time began. The psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're knit together in our mother's wombs. To the prophet Jeremiah, he's told that God knew him and called him and appointed him to be a prophet to the nations even before he was born. The Bible says about Jesus that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? That means that before Adam and Eve were ever created, God knew that Adam and Eve would fall. That means that before the forbidden fruit was ever taken, there was already a plan in force to bring redemption. That means that nothing ever has, nothing ever will, because nothing ever can take God by surprise. He is our omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, and nothing can take him by surprise. He's all-powerful all the time, and he's immutable. He is changeless. So that is the great and glorious God that we serve. The devil can't get on the field with him because he has none of those attributes. No demon in hell can get on the playing field with him because they have none of those attributes. And you and I have none of those attributes, but Jesus has all of those attributes. And therefore, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, always was, always is, and always will be, came and walked this earth, suffered for our sins because he had none of his own, humiliatingly in the most excruciating death that mankind has ever come up with, died on your behalf and mine, and his shed blood is now where we find our redemption, our wholeness, our purpose, our release, and our life. And it's according to his power and his purpose. Before time ever began, God knew my name. Before time ever began, he knew your name. Before time ever started, he knew where you would be right now. See, that gives me great hope. The sovereignty of God changes everything because I understand right now that way before there was a June 14th, 2020, God knew everything about June 14th, 2020. And nothing that's happening on June 14th, 2020 will change who God is. It doesn't change God's plan. It doesn't change God's purpose. It doesn't change what God's done. It doesn't change God's word. It doesn't change anything about me. Therefore, I can get up on June 14th the same way I got up on June 13th, the same way I'll get up on June 15th, and I can serve God from my whole heart, loving Him and loving my neighbors around me and serving the, looking at the Word of God for my instruction. And God, before time began, already had all of my days. The Bible says your days are already written in a book. So what are we so afraid of? And why are we so stressed out? Why is there so much anxiety? He goes on and he says this. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 10, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Who did? Jesus did. Jesus did. He's abolished death. We don't have to be afraid of death. Death is just a, a step into eternity, which Paul says is far better. I love Paul's writing. I shared it a little last week, but Paul said, you know what, I, I'm kind of caught between the two. I, I, I could go home and be with the Lord, or I could stay here. And It's almost like he almost goes, y'all still need me, so I guess I'm going to have to stay here for a while. 
But he actually says to depart and be with the Lord is not just better, but far better. That's why the Apostle John said in the last chapter of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so Paul says Jesus abolished death and he brought life through the gospel. That's why the gospel is so important. That's why you cannot let anything lead you into a false gospel. If we get the gospel wrong, if we get Jesus wrong, then everything else is going to be wrong. So it's important that we're following the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel. He goes on to say, To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles for this reason. For this reason. Why? Because of this calling, because of this gospel. I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Love this part. We're almost done. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. He's talking about the final day. I know who I believe. He doesn't just say, I know what I believed, although he did, and that's important. But I know who I believe. See, you don't have a relationship with a church building or a group of church-gathered people. You don't have a relationship with a set of doctrines, although doctrine is important, but that's not who you're related. It's not just what, it's who. We have a relationship with the living Son of God. We have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and it cost him everything to grant that relationship. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded. That means I know it for a fact. I'm 100% sure of it, that he's able. Not, not Paul. He is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, which puts me in remembrance of what Paul said to the church at Rome. Present your body as a living sacrifice every day. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. So because Paul, every day, he said, I die daily. I carry my cross. I die daily. Because Paul, every day, kept everything surrendered to Jesus. He wasn't worried about his stuff. He wasn't worried about anybody in his life. Because why? Because he kept it on the altar. And he knew that the one who kept the altar was able to keep that that he put on the altar. So the only time you have to be afraid is when you take your stuff off the altar. The only time you have to be concerned is when you haven't fully committed it to Christ. You say, well, it sure doesn't look like things are working out the right way. Well, it's not over yet. It's not that day yet, is it? It's not finished yet. The final verse hasn't been written yet as far as your life goes. God knows what it is, but you haven't walked into it yet. God's still at work. We're going to walk into the things that he's preordained for our life. Verse 13, here's his instruction to Timothy, his son in the face. So hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast. I don't think there could be a better instruction for our day and time. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Hold fast. Well, why did he have to say that? You're going to see it later in his letter. He said, in the last days, people will not endure sound doctrine or teaching. But instead, they'll heap up for themselves teachers having itching ears that will tell them what they want to hear. So you, Timothy, hold on to truth. Hold on to the sound words which you've heard from me. And in faith and love, and those are always connected, faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. You don't One without the other doesn't work right. Faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing? which was committed to you, keep. How? How do you keep those good things that God's given us? I'm going to work real hard at it. I'm going to work real hard. No. How do you keep it? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This work was started by Him. This work is carried on by Him. And this work will be finished by Him. Now, he closes out with just a few words and at least what we have as a chapter here. This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All, notice that, all those in Asia. And that's where he is. We would call it modern-day Turkey. He says, everybody's betrayed me. Everybody's walked away. In his worst time, he had no one. There's one person. We'll read about him later. Everybody else walked away. Do you know what it feels like to be betrayed? Do you know what it feels like to be rejected? So did the Apostle Paul. He understands. So did Jesus, by the way. He completely understands. 
He's acquainted with the feelings of our weaknesses and infirmities. That's why we can run to him as our great and faithful high priest come boldly to the throne of grace because he understands. He knows what we're going through. It says everybody's walked away. But verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, and I don't know if I pronounced that right or not. That's the best it's going to get. The household of Onesiphorus. Why? Why does Paul pray for mercy in his house? Because when everybody else walked away, he walked in. When everybody else forgot, he remembered. He said, he's often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. When he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered or served me in Ephesus. Well, Timothy would know that because that's where he is. So he says, you know what? There's one person who, who has been kind. There's one person who's cared. There's one person who's looked out for me. Matter of fact, he went out of his way to do it. This man whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce again. Lord, listen, all of us have people in our lives, probably. I'm assuming, I know I do, that when going gets tough, you want them to pray for you. Oh, you'd love to have everybody praying for you, but there are certain people, you're like, hey, pray for me. Okay? If you've got somebody in your life like that, you understand, right? Wouldn't it be great if you had the Apostle Paul? (laughs) Wouldn't it be awesome if you knew, if Apostle Paul said, hey, I want you to know I've been praying for you. Man, I've been praying for you. Here's what Paul did because this man walked in when nobody else would. And he said the same thing, by the way, to Timothy. He said, man, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. You know, we say those things and we don't even think about what we're saying. All the time. Somebody comes up, hey, you know, would you, I got this. and I'll be praying for you. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to pray for them. Sometimes that means that, man, I, I plan to pray for you. But when I walk out of here, I'm going to get real busy. And if I can remember, I'm going to pray for you. And a lot of times we don't remember. Isn't that right? But that wasn't Paul. Paul prayed day and night. And I, th- I think it's beautiful to see how human he was. See that? Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, was human just like you and I. When people deserted him, rejected him, it upset him. It broke his heart. Matter of fact, I don't know for sure if it's in 2 Timothy, but I know in other places, actually, some people he got kind of mad at. And he talks about it. There there are some people who got so far out there in left field in in Scripture, he names names. (laughs) He says, stay away from that one. Watch out for that one. He did me great harm. And then for somebody who walked in when everybody else walked out, he said, oh, grant mercy. Oh, and I might as well. Onesiphorus. Oh, grant mercy. I pray for him. He went out of his way to help me. So you can see Paul's heart. It's out there. Paul wasn't afraid of opening up his heart to people. Well, I bet Paul got hurt. Oh, I'm sure he did. You know the person who was hurt more than anybody else by opening their heart? Jesus. Nobody's ever been hurt more. You know, when they put the spear in his side, it said blood and water flowed out. Physicians say that literally comes from literally, literally a physical broken, a broken heart. Literally. So Jesus' heart was literally physically broken. He knows what it is to be rejected. Paul knew what it was to be rejected, left all alone, in his worst moment except for one that just kept coming. And that meant so much to Paul. Can I tell you something? The people that you care about, the people that God's put on your heart, the people that you pray for, the people that you text and encourage, the people that you call, the people that you go check on, the the people that that you minister to, it means something. I know how it it feels. There's a lot of times you'll you'll do something the Lord tells you to do and you think, ah, I don't even think they care. I don't even think they notice. I, I I don't even think they probably are annoyed. Keep doing what God calls you to do. It makes a difference. Care about people. Love people. Sure don't turn away from people. Well, sometimes they just make me so mad. 
One of my favorite sayings, I don't know where I got it. I have no idea where I picked it up. I'll occasionally say to Tammy, it makes me so mad I could spit nails. I don't know what that would look like, but it'd be pretty cool to watch, I think. So you mean I've got to love and stick with the people that make me so mad I could spit nails sometimes? Yep. Well, if you're going to follow Scripture, you do. Now, if you don't want to follow Scripture, you can do whatever you want to do. But you see, if you don't want to follow Scripture, you're not going to get scriptural results. And I'm going to tell you something. We're at a stage and a season in our world. We need scriptural results. We need it nationally. We need it in a church, as a church body. We need it individually. And if you're going to get scriptural results, you have to follow Scripture's patterns. Oh, you can do whatever you want. You can feel however you want, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. Sure you can. You've got that ability. I've got that ability. But not if I want scriptural results. If I want scriptural results, I have to do what the Bible says. And i got great news for you. This has been around for a long, long time, and it's never changed. You don't have to wonder when you get up in the morning, well, I wonder what God thinks about this today. Well, he's going to think the same thing today that he thought yesterday and 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago because this word doesn't change. It changes not. You know why it doesn't change? It doesn't need to. It worked at the, at the point it was originally written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's worked all throughout history. It works today. It will work tomorrow. And if the Lord tarries, it'll be working a thousand years from now for those who will believe it and trust it. That's why we go to the Word. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're just so grateful for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit today. We're grateful that we could gather together in this house and celebrate your goodness and your grace and worship your name. Lord, we're grateful for this family of believers who calls this church home. We're grateful for, Lord, the love and the, and the fellowship that we share with one another. Most of all, we're grateful that though our sins were red as scarlet, the blood of Jesus has washed them white as snow. We're grateful that you've removed our sins so far from us, they're as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered by you again. We recognize the great, extraordinary price, the sacrifice that was made for us to be forgiven, and we celebrate, we celebrate, Lord Jesus, who you are and everything you've done. I pray that you would take this word, not because of anything I've said, but because the word itself is living, powerful, sharper, than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder the soul from the spirit and discern the thoughts and the intents of the human heart. God, I pray that you would take this word, plant it deep within the soil of our hearts, that we would be receptive, that we would believe, and that we would be obedient to it. And Lord, where we see our lives in the mirror of your word, and where our life doesn't line up with your word, I pray, God, that we would not look for a way to change your word, to wrap it around our life, but, Lord, we would come humbly in the presence of your Spirit and, Lord, allow you to change our lives so that it bows its knee to the Word of God. And, Father God, we pray for that today in Jesus' name. With your heads